And Father, we pray you would open our eyes. We, we don't want to be blind to who you are, who you revealed yourself to be through your Son. We pray, Father, for a fresh filling of your Spirit to both uh, to, to receive and to give. Lord, we, we, we need to hear from you. Lord, we pray that, that you would help us to receive the things that you've provided for our peace. Our peace with you and a peace from you. Lord, please, we pray you do this for your glory and for our good. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And again, everyone who agrees says, Amen. Amen. So I think we probably know by experience, right, that this side of heaven, things are not as they should be. They're difficult. They're tough. And for being a Jesus follower doesn't change that. Being a Jesus follower doesn't make things and circumstances necessarily better. Some things, yes. There's an improvement on our lives as God changes us. There's no doubt about that. But some things, no, they're worse. They're tougher in following Jesus. And yet Jesus says this, listen, he says, I say these things to you that in me you may have peace. He says, in the world you're going to have tribulation, pressure, trouble, troubles. But take heed, take heart, sorry, I have overcome the world. And in this section, as, as we just read, Jesus is, is entering into Jerusalem. This is what we call the triumphal entry. Usually this is the text that people use on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. This is, this, this is happening as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem about seven days or about five days before he's crucified, seven days before he arises from the dead. And of course, the disciples with him are still kind of clueless if that was going to happen. But what he's going to do with this as he kind of comes into to, to Jerusalem is he's going to show himself afresh. He's going to confirm without a doubt who he is. And in doing so, the, these, this is what he's referring to when he says the things that make for peace because the things that make for peace all come from the prince of peace they all come in and through jesus and so we want to talk about this we want to see in this section the things that make for peace and the first thing we see in verse 28 to 40 is is god's chosen king rightly identified now we look at verse 28 and here's what it says it says that when jesus had said these things that is the things that we looked at last week when Jesus tells the parable of the minas, if you remember from last week, the mina being representative of the gospel that we've received and that we've been given as a stewardship. We're supposed to believe this gospel and share this gospel with whoever will listen. After he says these things and talks about that the kingdom will come uh, with, comes with him but also will come in its fullness when he returns, in saying these things, it says, as he went on ahead, that is, he's heading straight fast to Jerusalem, he goes up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where you are entering, uh, uh, I'm sorry, where on you entering, entering you, sorry, will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set, untie it and bring it here. Now, it's important that we see that what's going on here is Jesus is sending his disciples to do something that I think is pretty clear he's pre-planned. There are some people who want to say this was just something supernatural. He just said all these things would happen and they would happen. 
Jesus does loads of supernatural stuff, but I really think here what's happening is he's purposely planning how he's going to enter into Jerusalem. Because in, in, in prearranging there for, for there to be a cult, specifically a cult that's never been written on, he's communicating something clear. And see, this idea of a cult, this baby donkey, this, this something that isn't a war horse, but is something that a king would maybe use to show, hey, I've come in peace, he chooses this specifically. In fact, this was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. And so Jesus is prearranging this to show that he is the prophesied Messiah and that he's coming into Jerusalem in peace. Now, this is important because, of course, as we've been talking about, haven't we, as we get through Luke's Gospels, the expectation of the masses, of the Jewish masses, for their Messiah, for God's chosen king, was a powerful military Messiah, not one of peace, necessarily. So what happens next? Verse 31. Jesus says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it, so that... So those that, uh, who were sent went away and found it just as it was told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now what's interesting is, is this not only just kind of shows that Jesus was prearranging this, but what's interesting, this is the first time in Luke's gospel, one of the few times in the gospel, where Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. And in calling himself the Lord, he, he's, he's wanting his disciples to understand something. And Luke wants us to see this. That, that he is basically referring himself to the sovereign one who controls his own destiny. Remember, we've already seen Jesus predicting in the Gospels that, 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 that he would be arrested. He would be betrayed. He would be beaten. He would be crucified. And on the third day, uh, third day he would rise from the dead. He knew of his betrayal. He knew as he goes into Jerusalem how he would suffer. But he arranges the entrance in such a way that it communicates, listen, I am indeed the prophesied Messiah and I'm in control of what's going to happen this next week. That's what he's doing. In fact, it's interesting. The, the, earlier in Jesus' ministry, when, when he's doing all his miracles, in fact, after he fed the 5,000, John's gospel tells us that the people were so excited, so assured that he was the Messiah then, Here's what we read. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Those when they were so sure that he was the Messiah, they're going to say, we're forcing the issue now. We're going to make this guy rule. We're going to conquer the Romans. We're going to bring God's kingdom in right now. And Jesus, nope, not, now's not the time. This is important for us to understand because what, what we're trying to see here, what, what the Gospels are trying to show us with the triumphal entry is that Jesus is indeed God's chosen king. That everyone who saw him go forth on this day would have thought that very thing. And so what happens, verse 35 says, as they brought it to Jesus, that is they brought the coat to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along, and they, as, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down 
the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now what's happening here? Luke's kind of describing something that would have been familiar to the first readers because if you ever were to go to Jerusalem, and I need to make it really clear too, hopefully we, we all know this, that Jesus here in, in wanting to enter in Jerusalem, this is not the first time he's been to Jerusalem. He probably went once a year growing up as a child, at least from the time he was about 11 or 12 years old, he went once a year. And even in his ministry, since he began his earthly ministry, he's been at least a half a dozen times. But this time, he's coming with pomp and circumstance, or at least a measure of that, to prove that he is the Messiah. And what he's doing there is he's receiving, and and, and they're putting their cloaks on this colt and putting the cloaks on the ground. They're basically doing something that is showing that they're honoring him as the king. We see this in the Old Testament. You can look it up in in 2 Kings chapter 9 where when when Jehu was made king, they did the same thing. They kind of say, this guy is now officially the king. This is what they're declaring. But also what they're doing is they're, they're erupting in praise. They're so excited that Jesus is finally coming out to say, I am the Messiah, I am God's chosen king, that they just are erupting in praise specifically about, listen, the things they had seen him do. Now remember at this point in Luke's gospel, these disciples were still clueless about his death and his resurrection. But they saw that he showed the very authority of God over creation, over demons, over the dead. That he, he spoke with the authority of God. That they knew that this indeed must be the divine Messiah, God's chosen king. And so they're so excited, what do they do? They praise, they worship, they celebrate. In fact, when this happens, what happens, of course, the Pharisees see this in verse 39. As some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus, of course, answers this famous verse, I tell you, if they were silent, even the very stones would cry out. Now, now the the, the Pharisees don't like this. They think the disciples' praise is inappropriate because, one, they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and two, they definitely don't believe he's worthy to be worshipped. But Jesus takes it a bit further. He doesn't just say, oh, no, no, I'm the Messiah. It's okay that they worship me. No, he actually, in, in saying this phrase and using this phrase, He's equating, listen, he's equating the the praise they're giving him with the praise that creation gives to the creator. We read about this kind of praise in the Psalms. Listen to this, Psalm chapter 96. It says, let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it, let the fields be jubilant and everything in them, let all the trees of the forest sing for joy, let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. There's this this explosion of celebration and worship that the creation kind of speaks towards God and his glory as the creator. And Jesus is saying, listen, hey, if these guys don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. In a very real sense, he's, he's kind of claiming to be the creator. Now, why is this important for us? How does this fit in with the things that make for our peace? 
Notice what they're saying when they're praising him. They say, they, they're, they're, this is kind of, uh, Luke is kind of paraphrasing Psalm 118, which is a definitely a, we call a messianic psalm, a psalm that looks forward to the coming of God's chosen king. And, and they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound kind of familiar? Do you remember way back in Luke's gospel, in Luke's chapter 2? What did the angels say at Jesus' birth? Peace on earth and glory in the highest. So, so what's the connection here? The issue is this. They're, they're singing peace in heaven. And you you kind of wonder if, if in Luke doing this, if, if Luke's kind of looking back or, or, or writing down the stories he's heard people tell him about this scene and thinking, man, did they even realize what they were praising? That before we'll ever experience peace on earth, before the, his kingdom comes in his fullness, first there needs to be peace in heaven. That is, we need to be at peace with heaven. We need to be at peace with God. And we're only in peace with God through what his son does for us. It's interesting. This, this, this scene of these guys worshiping so enthusiastically, so assured of what they've seen because I have to say I don't know today was a bit tough with all the technical difficulties but sometimes it feels like not just our music and song but in our service even the way we treat each other we just don't have very much enthusiasm you know what the word enthusiasm means where it comes from that English word enthusiasm it comes from a phrase I think it's Latin a Latin phrase that means or no it's a Greek phrase that means in God n in Theo, God. Enthusiasm. We, listen, we as those who know the creator of the universe, we who know and have, have experienced the good things he have done, we should be examples of enthusiasm. I'm not talking about faking it until you're making it. I'm not talking about trying to make yourself feel something emotional. I'm talking about rightly responding to who we've seen Jesus to be. I want you to think about this for a second. Because these guys, listen, these disciples who are praising him, and you've probably heard Bible studies before where it says the same guys, in fact, I've probably said this before and it was wrong. Uh, these guys who are praising him are the same guys who said crucify him. That's probably not correct. Because these guys, at least according to the Luke's gospel, are his disciples. Don't just think the 12, think the 70 plus. These are those that would follow him from city to city. Or when, when he came in, they would say, that's going to be our rabbi. And they would follow him into, in and through their city. These are those who were seeing him as Messiah. And they saw him as Messiah. They believed his works proved that he was Messiah. And listen, what did they do? They praised. Even when they're distracted. They praised. They celebrated. I wonder if we forfeit peace because we don't praise. In Psalm chapter 22, you guys all know Psalm 22. It's the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, listen to what it says. This is what the psalmist says. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you, and you 
rescued them. Do you see what's going on there? The psalmist is praising, not because his experience is good, but because God is good to his people. And listen, listen, seriously, this is so important for us to see that, that, that Jesus is, is, is doing something He's revealing something. He's confirming what they understand so far, that he is indeed God's chosen king, though they have no clue how, how gnarly things are going to get in the next five or six days. But he's confirming what's true, and they're not going, yes, but, yes, but. They're just praising. How much more us on this side of the cross on this side of the empty tomb, on this side of the ascension of Jesus, on this side of the sending of his Holy Spirit, how much more should we praise God? I can't help but think we forfeit so much peace because we don't praise. I, I, uh, I just stopped my Spotify subscription. And I stopped it because I just wanted to save the 10 quid a month, basically. And I have to say, I kind of miss it because when you choose, like I might choose my praise set, right? And it just like they add extra songs in and these stupid commercials. And you're like, ah, you're really kind of messing up my vibe here, man. Come on. And I miss it because I'll tell you, sometimes when, when I'm in just the, the bluest funk I can be in and I think, I, I just, I'm, I'm driving from my house to the office wishing I could be somewhere else, usually fantasizing about surfing, if I'm being honest. As I'm doing that, if I put on some praise music and sing what I know to be true, it's amazing how my heart will turn to the Lord. It's amazing how that peace, that doesn't, the circumstances haven't changed. I might still be stressed about things or worried about things or really missing surfing really bad. But the, here's the reality... The peace that's better than understanding guards my heart and mind. So what happens next? As they, as they do this and as, the, as the, Jesus says, listen, man, these guys are praising because if they didn't, even the stones would cry out. He's, he's, remember, he's on his way, winding this windy road up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's like 3,000 feet up. And so coming from where they were coming from, the Mount of Olives is maybe more like 2,000 feet up. I should say that in meters, shouldn't I? So it's about 1,500 meters is Jerusalem and about uh, uh, 7,000 7, or 750 uh, meters, I guess it would be, is about how high the Mount of Olives is. So they kind of go down and they go back up. And as he goes up to the Mount of Olives, as he winds this road up, um, up at the mountain of Jerusalem, as he winds his way up Mount Zion to Jerusalem, one of the first things that you see as you get higher is the temple. You see the city spread out with the temple. So as he draws near the city, it sees it spread out. What does he do? It says in verse 41, he wept over it. The, the original language is stronger. Is he, he just kind of burst out in sobs. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen something so beautiful you burst out in sobs? Have you ever seen something so devastating you burst out in sobs? Jesus, when he goes up to Jerusalem, he breaks out in these convulsive sobs. And here's why. Verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden 
from your eyes. See, Jesus is grieving here because he knows, as we'll see in a minute, the destruction the city is going to face. He recognizes the fact that, 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 that even the disciples who believed he was the Messiah will turn their back on him, that most of the city will not see him as the Messiah, will reject him as such, and he knows the destruction that comes from that, and it absolutely grieves him because, listen, it could have been avoided. I'm not saying the cross could have been avoided, but their destruction potentially could have been avoided. He says, these things are hidden from you. Someone once said, there is none so blind as the one who refuses to see. It's not that Jesus, his ministry was done in, in a secret. Everyone knew who he was. Luke's gospel makes this clear at the very end of the gospel. The book of Acts, which is kind of Luke part two, makes it really clear. There was no secret to Jesus' ministry. The reason that the, the, the Pharisees wanted to crucify him is because not, he didn't just claim to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God's only son. And they saw that as blasphemous for a man to say he was God's son. There is no secret about what his ministry is. So it wasn't hidden in the sense that they, they, they weren't allowed to see it. They were refusing to see it. Jesus talks about this uh, after he heals a blind man. And the Pharisees want to know why that blind man was healed on the, on the Sabbath. And they kind of corner him. And you guys remember the story where Jesus says to, or the blind man says to the Pharisees, why don't you ask him yourself? Are you believing him now? Oh, we're not like you. We don't believe in this guy. And Jesus finds this guy. And Jesus tells this man who was healed from blindness, listen, in John chapter 9, he says, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Understand what's happening. Jesus is, is, is here and he's weeping over the blindness of Jerusalem. And you know what Jerusalem means? City of peace. He's saying, here I am. I'm the one who actually brings peace. You're told in the Psalms to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm the one who is the Prince of Peace, came to bring peace between you and your God. So you can have peace with each other and you're blind to it. You're blind to it. Folks, this is a, a compassionate warning from Jesus. In fact, look what he says in verse 43. He says, for the days will come upon you, Jesus says, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know or recognize the time of your visitation. And we're going to talk more about this prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, which came to pass in 70 AD. We'll talk more about this in Luke chapter 21. But for, for, uh, suffice it to say this, please see this in this heavy warning to Jerusalem as he's going, making his way up there, as he's presenting himself as God's chosen king. He's doing so, have given a compassionate warning that Jesus, who talked more about judgment and hell than anybody else in Scripture, does so 
because he loves us, because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says. This is the heart of God that we see in Jesus that God says through the prophet Ezekiel. Listen, God speaking, do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. I do not want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. Again, I wonder, here's the Prince of Peace coming in, and I wonder if we, like Jerusalem, are missing God's peace because we're not heeding God's warnings. Do you know how quick God is to forgive you? Do you know how quick God is to show mercy? Do you know how slow he is to anger? Do you realize this is why he weeps and warns? But he withholds his peace when we are refusing to see what he says. Anyone, listen to me, listen to me. Anyone who tells you that God loves you just the way you are, it doesn't matter what you do or what, what you do from this day on, God loves you just the way you are, is spinning something. Because the Bible teaches God loves you right where you are right now with all your junk, with all your failings, with all your brokenness. He loves you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. And so he warns, turn to me. Turn to me. Do you understand this? Can, can you see in Jesus warning Jerusalem, can you not see a parallel for us? Do not these same kinds of warnings go throughout the New Testament? You hear people say all the time, don't you? Oh, I like the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he was harsh. Man, the God of the Old Testament revealed himself as the one who's slow to anger and, and quick in mercy, quick to forgive. The God of the New Testament here, Jesus, same God, by the way, is showing that he's a God of justice and righteousness and a God who weeps and warns because he loves us and he wants us to know his peace. The peace that he's talking about here is not just a peace with God, but a peace from God that we can experience as we turn to him and say, Lord, forgive me. When we don't heed Jesus' warnings, we end up missing God's peace. So what happens next? Jesus is doing here, verse 45, it says he enters the temple. Now you need to understand something that would have been clear to a first century reader is that, that any time a king would go into any city that he's conquered, he would go into that city, usually on a, a military horse, not on a, a cult of peace. But he would go straight into the temple of their gods and he'd sacrifice their gods to, to say, we're going to honor the god of this city. So, so he would, the, the, the conquering king in that day, whatever the king was from, a king of of Rome, a king of, of another country, would go into a city they've conquered, they'd go into the temple of that city, and they'd worship the God of that temple through a sacrifice to show we're here to, because this God wanted us to be here. But Jesus comes to the temple and he does something a little bit different. He says he enters the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of of robbers. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's, 
he's combining two verses. One, one is Isaiah 56, 7, the other is Jeremiah 7, 11. He's kind of quoting two verses and putting them together. And, and, and we see him here, he's coming into the temple and he's cleansing it. And he's doing this for a reason. Listen, he's, he's showing that he has the authority to cleanse the temple. He has authority over the temple. Now, why was the temple built? Bible scholars, why did God say there can be a temple? Why did God command Moses to build a tabernacle? It was meant to be a place that proved to God's people that God was with him. His presence was with him. So listen, the, temp, the tabernacle and then to follow the temple was about confirming to God's people about God's presence. It wasn't about confirming to God's people about this great prosperity they could have. But one of the things the first century Jews did, specifically Jewish leaders did, is the same thing that many church leaders are doing today in the Western church, and it's now spread everywhere throughout the world. That is, they're believing that the whole reason Jesus came was to make us prosperous. We're here just to have prosperity. Now, don't get me wrong. The Lord wants to prosper us. The Hebrew word shalom for peace really is probably better translated prosperity. It's things as they should be. There is coming a day, soon and very soon, hallelujah, when the Lord comes back and we will prosper. That's the picture we see in Revelation. But until the Lord comes back, we're not called to prosperity. And the purpose of God's temple is to celebrate His presence, not our prosperity. So what's the temple now? You guys know this, right? 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for the temple is holy and you are that temple. Listen, here's the application for this. Jesus, he, he, this is God's chosen temple, was this place in Jerusalem, right? Now, guess what? We are God's chosen temple temple, those who believe in Jesus. We are God's chosen temple. And the, attendance, the, the, the purpose of us gathering together is so that people would say, as we read in 1 Corinthians 14, right? Surely God is in this place. And that is not seen because we all prosper. That is seen because we love by the power of God's Spirit. We love God in worship we love others in service. Can you see when we don't get it right, it's a good thing that Jesus has the authority to cleanse us? Seriously. This is God's temple, not the elders of Servants Church temple. This is God's temple, not your temple. We are God's temple. He has chosen to set up His presence with us as we gather in His name for His glory. And when we get that wrong, you know what He needs to do? And then what He is so faithful to do? Cleanse us. Cleanse us. Do you desire, listen, do you desire what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 14, that that experience that we would come in together and say, surely God is in this place. Anybody want that? Oh, seriously, show of hands if you honestly want that. 
Do you want to see God? Do you want to experience God when you gather together? Then we got to say, Jesus, cleanse us. Get rid of the junk. Forgive us when we're buying and selling our own ideas, when we're looking for only our own prosperity. There's something else going on here, too, that's really important to see. Because Jesus is doing this. Remember, he already knows he's going to be crucified. So you think if he's going to go in, he announces himself, and he's going to go into hiding and wait and try to stay away from it. But no, what are we going to see happen? In verse 47, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. Every day he's in the temple, and he's telling the truth of God to the people who will listen. And it says, And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men were seeking to destroy him. They wanted him dead. But verse 48 says, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. You see, Jesus isn't afraid to die. Well, we'll see that as a man, as a real man, he, there's an anxiety to this, that he experiences that strain, that pressure. He wasn't a stoic. He was a real man who experienced real emotions. But he was willing to die. He was willing to, for his life to be at risk. Why? Because he wanted to cleanse the temple of God so that God's presence could be in its fullness. We're that temple. Guess you guys know this. You, if you're married, you for sure, I'm sure, know these verses. If you're Especially if you're a wife, you know these verses. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave her himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Notice, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What does Jesus do with his church? He cleanses her. Who's the church? It's us. We're the temple of the living God. And he cleanses us that God might be here with us. See, when we don't look for Jesus' cleansing, we miss God's peace. We miss it. See, it's not just about us praising God like as if that's kind of like a formula. If we praise God, we feel better. It's, 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 it's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's not, it's not just that, that we need to heed the warning and go, yeah, I need to deal with the junk that's in my life. I need to just not be so blind about what I've been up to or, or, or where we're at with things. It's that we say, Lord, you have the authority to cleanse and you and you alone can make me clean. Let's respond to this. Let's, let's right now respond to this truth. The Lord's with us, guaranteed. He says, if two or three of you are gathered together, I'm in the midst of that. The, Spirit and only, the Holy Spirit not only dwells in each believer, but he manifests when we come together in his name. I'm, I'm willing to bet there's at least two or three of us here who really want to see Jesus move right now. Chuck from your head what you think that's going to look like. Just get it out. And think about what you need. Because what you and I need is cleansing.
as the Lord comes into Jerusalem and says, I'm God's chosen king, and I'm giving you this compassionate warning, and I'm, I'm, I'm coming here to cleanse the temple where God dwells. As he did it then, he's doing it now when we gather together in his name.